Lang Martin Jr. is a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame and author of the memoir, Permission to Fly. For today's guest, it all started with the thrill of hearing an $80 demo of his first song. For the next 45 years, he was hooked on the process of writing and pitching songs. But who gave him permission to fly in the first place? Lang credits his mother, who never put him down and always gave him the leeway to try things out his own way even if that meant figuring out how to deal with the consequences on his own. To learn more about Lang's journey, including getting hits with Elvis Presley, Reba McIntyre, Jerry Lee Lewis, the Pointer Sisters, and more, be sure to listen to today's episode of the Fearless Storyteller podcast. Also, today's show notes include a link to a Spotify playlist where you can hear some of Lang's hit songs. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcatcher of choice. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for a link to the Patreon offerings. We've got some good ones for you. Thanks so much for being a listener and supporter of the show. Enjoy today's interview. Lang Martin Jr., welcome to the Fearless Storyteller. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations on being fearless. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's a misnomer. There's always fear. It's just a question oh, yeah. of what happens afterward, I guess. Yeah. Well, fears are a great propellant. Yeah. Well, so for people who may not know who you are, what would you like to share about yourself? Well, I, I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, I had a dream of, I, I just grew up loving music and uh, listening to the radio constantly. And, and in my ear, I, I Grew up loving people like Frank Sinatra and uh, Dean Martin, Tony Bennett, um, Nat King Cole. And then, believe it or not, Ethan, there was a moment, there was literally a moment when rock and roll started in the New York area where I was. It was literally one week when a couple of stations flipped from being, you know, that Tony Bennett kind of stuff, which, as I say, I love, to rock and roll. I mean, we had been away, and this kid called me and said, Lang, tune in, 1010 wins in New York. And I hmm. I turned it on, and honest to God, it was stuff like, from Barbara to Sam, I'm sorry about Thursday night. <laughs> da, 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 da. And then a new world just opened. And I thought, God, this is just rules of my life. But I, I was also I was also a, a pool boy for Benny Goodman, you know. So I was steeped in all this different kind of music. But I never ever once, even working for Benny Goodman for three or four years, as his pool boy, yard boy, it mm -hmm. brought my mind to earn a living in music. It wasn't until I think I was about twenty and I was in college, and everyone had an idea of what they wanted to do, and lots of them were, you know, Wall Street oriented or um, 
you know, lawyers and doctors and blah, 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 literally. And I said, God, I'm so excited about that. What would I die to do? And I just said, I'd die to be a songwriter. The first hint. And, and I, I started writing songs in my neighborhood. I didn't even have an instrument. I would walk around my neighborhood writing these songs. And, mm-hmm. and uh, one day, I, you know, I, I wrote this song and I said, I love this song. What do I do with it? And so I, 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 I went to this bar in New York called the Turf Bar, famous as a hangout for musicians, writers, and stuff. And um, the first two days, literally, that I went there, I didn't have the guts to go in to try to find someone and ask them how I make a demo of my song. Mm. But I finally did, and I went in, and this guy gave me the info of um, the studio that he recommended, and I went over there, and I think for about $80, I made my first demo and i just went in and, and sang it to them and i just had you know just sang it in the air and they just tried out these chords on the piano and said does this sound like what you're thinking and i said god that sounds fabulous and <laughs> we made it perfect. and it just started and i thought well nothing can touch this nothing ever can come close to this and i was i was right for me for about 45 or plus years which i was just obsessed with it yeah. so I earned my living as a songwriter and, and that's, you know, was my, you know, just what I thought about every single day. And, you know, somewhere 10 years ago or so, I, I wasn't waking up daily with a song in my heart, so to speak. Mm. And I started wanting to write about this life that we've had. And it began with a story that I wrote about, um, my wife's in my life since her car accident, which was, uh, you know, now 25, 27 years ago. But at the time, it was 15, 16 years before that. And, and I just thought, you know, how our life had changed and how we sort of coped with it and how we continued to have what we think is a fabulous life, despite this, um, her being crippled in this car accident. Mm-hmm. And I wrote this story and it, I was reading Modern Love column one day in the New York Times on Sunday, and at the bottom it said, if you think you have a modern love story, you know, send it here, and it had an email. So I emailed it. The guy wrote me back right away and said, I love this, I want to print this, and he printed it, and it just got this incredible response mm. literally all over the world, and I thought, well, this is the best feeling I could possibly have at this moment in my life, and so I just began a book which is this book called permission to fly mm. uh, and i it that's what i did for 10 years i wrote that that book took me 10 years for every single day working on that book wow. but ethan i loved every single day working on it it wasn't in any way onerous i didn't dread it i did because all of the people i wrote about were these people i loved the, Walma, the people that I worked for, the people that I'd met, people in my school, kids I knew. And it it just was such a pleasure. And I, I scraped away, and as I went along, everything that didn't have a reason for being and didn't have some kind of a lesson that I learned that helped me go on and, you know, have what I, you know, think is a great life. And But it was all because of things I learned from people. So... Um, Mm. I, you know, it was just such a pleasure to talk about, you know, my dean of students at my school and the people that, you know, showed me the way to be as a person or what I felt was the way to be. So anyway, 
10 years uh, spent that I love. And I imagine, I imagine that as you're writing that every day, more stories and more people would come to mind. You... Yeah, they did. And, and, and what, what mattered, you know, like what really mattered. I mean, it was very ironic as I, you read in the beginning of the, the book was, um, you know, the, the night that I was with my seventh grade girlfriend and I first heard Elvis Presley and I just, I just thought, well, that's, that just, it really did flip a switch in my heart and never, never went off. And I ended up getting a recording by Elvis that happened to be number one on the country charts the day that he died, which is most incredible. It's literally, literally the last song he ever recorded in his life. And so, I, I mean, I, in, in the book, I go back to the very first moment. It's like the very first few sentences of my book are about hearing that and that seminal moment, that charge, that rocket fuel that goes in your bloodstream. And, and then he records my song and then he dies when it's, it's number one. I mean, it's just mind boggling. That's pretty crazy. Really? Yeah, really <laughs> so. Well, okay. So th- there's a lot to the story. Um, I wanted to talk about the early part for a moment. You, you mentioned, you know, you took your $80 and you got a demo and the magic of that experience. What, what was, do you remember what your concept of songwriting was then? Well, I, I read all the magazines that printed lyrics. They're, they were called Hit Parader and Song Hits, and there are about three or four of them. Hmm. And I would read these lyrics, and, and I, I'd say, God, how could this song take three or four minutes to play? And it's, and it's like, you know, eight lines or 12 lines or something of words. And so I, when I began writing songs, I knew they were short, and I knew I had to, to wrap it quickly. Hmm. And so that really helped me. I could look at, at formats to a song like, uh, like uh, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow or some, something like that. It's, it's proven classic. I, I was kind of focused on things that were, you know, just huge hits and that it, ironically it turned out to last forever. But at the moment they were often current. But I would hear a song like Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? Will You Love Me Tomorrow? And it was so short. And I thought, okay, I have to do that. I have to start the song, introduce it, have have some kind of activity in the middle of it, and then I have to resolve it in a hurry. Mm-hmm. How do I do that? And so I literally would walk around my neighborhood at night in the dark singing my song. And that that extra I one of the most typical things that I see when when young writers bring songs, will you listen to my song? They go on forever. Mm-hmm. And they but all the with rare exception, all the giant songs that we all know have this compressed format that get, makes a point, rams it home, and is somehow, hopefully, irresistible somewhere in there. It may be a musical part, it may be a lyrical part, combination, rhythmic, whatever, but it's quick. You know quickly when it starts. And so that... Uh, learning to do that was pretty challenging i thought Mm. but i didn't start with long stuff and i know that that helped me um just having looked at the song 
in print, not just listening to it. When you see it and then you say, okay, that whole song, wild thing or whatever it is, it's, there it is. It, who would believe it that it could take three minutes, but it does. Yeah. And, and I remember right back in the, the day, tangible form, sometimes, I don't know how it was when you were a kid, but you know, the, the vinyl sometimes had the song lyrics on the back or on Oh, God, that was the insert. best. Yeah. Yeah, well, when, when we were kids, even, it was just you'd buy the album and it would have a blank sleeve inside with the vinyl in the middle. This is an album, not a, not a single. And then on the back, it would usually have a short something, especially if the guy were a new artist. It would give you some often apocryphal story you know the <laughs> thing he was having an ice cream cone at the hollywood this and somebody said you look like a star you know and and but that's all we knew about these people even even elvis it wasn't as much as info as there was available um it was you know he, he was driving an electric truck uh for an electric company and he and on his lunch hour he brought his disc to or his voice to this studio and will you record me and yeah, I want to make an album for my mother and it's your birthday mm. and, so, yeah. and that is part of it, but then all the everything else when you read some of the other full length books is, yeah it sounds like they were being presented the artists were being presented as everyday relatable people as yeah. part of the marketing but often they, they totally skip the struggle on the back of the albums mm. they often were uh you know buddy holly grew up in lubbock texas where he had a band and and then he you know and then like nothing about all the times that i'm sure he got screwed to the wall by this or the, that person and all the heartbreaks that went they skip all that because you're only you know you've got just the back of the album and really it was maybe six lines or something mm. but whatever it was there'd be a picture and and you would just dream on that you know and listen to the record and in your room at night you know and just think wow i want to be that you know <laughs> yeah and, and so you for your book you you mentioned it started with your mother saying yes to you and yeah. i was hoping you could share about that on the yeah, podcast yeah, well, she, so like what what is permission mean to you yeah permission was to screw up or to be successful but whatever happens it's your problem and that was a really great message because she she had a lot of faith in me and made it really clear she was ethan she was always saying what you needed to hear it was mm -hmm. she was never lying to you because it was her true opinion but she skipped the rotten stuff she never said, Lang, you look like crap. You can't go out looking like that. Or Lang, I can't believe you did that. You, you just, I knew you were a loser. You, never. It was just the opposite. It was always, you know, Mom, I want to I wanna ride my bike to this town. You know, or more, more likely, I would just say, Mom, I'm riding my bike to, in my case, New Canaan today. That was New Canaan, Connecticut. So that was six or seven miles away. And I was, say, maybe 10. She, she never said, you know, no, you can't, you know, I, I would just go and I'd be back by dark and, and, but if on the way, I mean, if I got a flat tire and I, I don't call me, she has, we have five kids in the family, 
figure it out. So I'd learn to, you know, knock on a door and ask someone if they could, you know, take me to a gas station or whatever it is. And it just started really early. I, I, I just got to believe that whatever happened, there was some way to get out of it. And I'd, I'd find it. And, you know, I think we all know throughout our whole life, sometimes you have to ask for help. We can't do it, you know. And so whether it was that, you know, knocking on doors or, or going, you know, as I was taking my songs around and asking something, would you listen to this? Is there a time today when you would be able to listen to this for five minutes? And, you know, you know that's, that's different from saying, you know, I, I got the greatest song in the world. You'd be lucky to hear my song. And then you don't get anywhere because you can't actually say, I need you to pay attention to me. You, you mm-hmm. have to be, be willing to, be the supplicant. I mean, if you read anything about things like Winston Churchill trying to get Franklin Roosevelt to give him some boats and stuff during the war, he, he had to go beg. And sometimes we all have to do that. And and that's one of the products, you know, when my mom would say, yeah, roll with it, go, you know, I mean, I'm, I think the fifth weekend or something that I had my driver's license, Ethan, I drove my car to, to Canada. I got a map out and I said, what's the farthest I can go and be back on, on Sunday night? It was mm-hmm. Quebec City. It was like, so I said, wait, they speak French? I can get there in eight hours? I'm going, you know? Well, she never said, I mean, I promise you, since we had so many kids, she was really glad when some of us weren't around. <laughs> so so I, I, I just made up all these adventures. And we, this kid and I sold bedroom slippers door to door one summer. We, we made a fortune and we, we do all these crazy things. One day we went skydiving and one day we said, okay, let's go, let's drive south until we see a, pine, a palm tree, however long that is. So we just got in this car. And, and we drove to, I think, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And we saw a palm tree, and we made a U-turn, and we came home. <laughs> had like 75 ice creams and hot dogs on the way. But, you know, all that kind of stuff, that's, that's kind of what teaches you how to, you know, have adventures and freedom, and that, that you can kind of do whatever you want to do if you're willing to pay the price. That's kind of the key thing that my mom taught me by saying yes all the time. You know, that, with the subtext was, yeah. And, and it's you figure it out. You pay the price for what happens in good and bad. Sometimes it was a profit, not a price, you know? So who knows? I get that. I, I was kept on a loose <laughs> leash, leash myself. And, it helps. Uh, yeah, it does. And I think my mom expected it in some way that I was getting up to more trouble than I was. <laughs> maybe that's because she was a child of the 60s i don't know <laughs> yeah well or that she knew you were a boy and <laughs> boys tend to get in a little more trouble than girls that's true uh, that does happen <laughs> so so you were serious about this whole music thing and it, you had you felt that permission to lean into whatever you were exploring um how long did it take you from recording that first demo to deciding to go to Nashville? And why did you decide to go to Nashville? I decided to go to Nashville because in figuring out who could teach me the most, I arrived at a man who was in Nashville named Ray Stevens. Mm. And I had been, I had been going to college in New York city and, and I, that was when I began taking my songs around it. But then afterwards, when I was in advertising, because we were married, I had to earn a living and everything, I, I tried to bury 
the need to write songs because it was so amorphous. You just can't get your arms around it. How do you do it? Where, who do you go to? What do you do? And so what I found was I'd take one song to one person. They'd say it was too country and they'd say it was too uh, sad or too happy. I mean, I actually had someone said, Lang, you write too many happy songs. You'd do better if you wrote some sad songs. I, I just, that's <laughs> not really what I do very well. And so I thought, okay, who has the most eclectic palette of anyone I can think of? And it was, it was Ray Stevens who had, you know, some gigantic hits like The Streak that you probably remember, but he also wrote Everything is Beautiful and just an incredible variety of songs. I thought if I could be his gopher, if I could just be around him every day and to play him my new song, I think I could learn in a hurry. And uh, one day I, I just got on a plane at LaGuardia and I, I just took a taxi from Nashville Airport to his office had my little guitar and his office was in a house because at the time Nashville's music row was primarily just houses that had been converted to commercial use and people were putting their music offices in there. Mm. And I, I just went in, I, I said, would you, you know, secretary was there and I said, Ray around, would he listen, anybody listen to my songs? And he's, he liked one of them and he said, if you write me a song I like as much as that one, I'll record you. And at the time I... I was not dying to be a recording artist, but I wanted to do anything but what I was doing mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. <laughs> That's a powerful force. So, uh, yeah. And so I sent him songs for about almost a year, I guess. And one day he just, he called up and he said, this song you sent me is a smash. How soon can you be here? We'll record and blah, blah, blah. It turned out that song was a song called Rub It In, which became a, a big hit country and pop hit too. But it also became a commercial called Plug It In for this uh, product, air freshener for Glade plugins. <laughs> and it ran, for, it ran for 18 years or something. Wow. Time. Yeah, yeah, just miracles. But I, one of the keys to it, Ethan, is I, I loved taking my songs around to people. I, was, I did not get discouraged. I got surprised and, uh, you know, slowed down and so on, but I never... I just, for some reason, I just never said I never wanted to take my goddamn songs to anybody in my life. It's too depressing. I just never felt that way. I got so excited when someone liked a song. It was just such a rush. There was nothing quite like being in the room. You play your song. Somebody says, God, I love that. I think X artist will love that song. It's just such a charge to me. But I also mm -hmm. love the being out of my cubicle where I wrote all my songs. I would writing songs especially by yourself which i did mostly is lonesome and so yeah. i thrived on you know go in the office you see the secretary you see a couple other songwriters waiting to play their songs and then i'd see the record producer and it was just a, a good combination of, of lonely and, and gregarious uh -huh. and i got most of my own records not all but almost all my own records by just busting my ass taking them taking them around to people so i was suited for it I, I i had ray stevens helping me improve as a songwriter and he also had great faith in me he said lane this is fabulous and i mean if someone turned that song off 20 times i'd say ray is 10 times smarter than that guy he's wrong ray's right and i just keep taking the song around and that was like talk about a fear thing of being a propellant. That was a propellant because yeah. I had so much faith in his judgment and, and he was just so encouraging to me. And you know, I, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere without him.
Yeah, so having somebody in your corner was pretty important to the Oh, process. well, and a genius. I mean, he had Grammys all over the walls, and, and he's, you know, saying, hey, Lang, you lost me in that line there. You got to change that. And I go, okay, I'm changing it. Whereas yeah. if it's been, you know, just a normal person, they say change it. I say, that guy's a moron. I'm not changing that line. You know, it's totally different. Mm. Yeah. So you, you highlight an interesting point that stands out for me, knowing a little bit about Nashville culture today. Um, you were writing most of your songs yourself. And yeah. Yeah. And what was the culture of writing like when you got to Nashville and started pitching songs and were writing? There were it was pro- lots of co-writing, probably, probably mostly co-writing. Um, but the models that I had who were people like Chris Christopherson uh, or Ray Stevens or just uh, trying to think of Curly Putman who wrote Green Green Grass at Home. I mean, they, they wrote the songs by themselves. And I was, I just, I, I want to know how to do that. I don't, I don't want to be, you know, in Eastport, Maine with a great idea and no co-writer and unable to close the deal and write the song. I want to be able to write this. I want to learn how to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I really, you know, I, in the very beginning, Ethan, like when I was in New York, um, I think probably within the, maybe even the first year, I was still going to college and, and taking my song to this one publisher. And in that publisher's office was a very um, experienced songwriter whose name is Lou Stallman. He wrote, I don't know if you know this song, but find a wheel and it goes round, round, round without it. And, and another one called The Treasure of Love. Both of them are gigantic hits. Mm. And he kept saying, Lang, you ought to write with me. You ought to write with me. You ought to write with me. I said, I, I don't want to write with somebody. I, I'm just doing this by myself. And one day he said, Lang, how many hits do you have coming out that you wrote by yourself? And, of course, I had none. And he said, you should write with me. Come over to my apartment. We'll write a few songs. Mm. And we did. We wrote, um, I don't know, six or seven songs over a period of whatever, a couple years. And most of them got recorded. But I would go home after these writing sessions and take these songs apart and just see how he built up into the chorus. Mm. See, see where it started, where, where the, the intensity came back down for the second verse, where if he put a bridge in it, you know, what, what is that bridge? What, how do you do that? You know? And so this dissecting our work of that day was more lessons. And so when I got to Nashville, I mean, I'd already been writing songs when I got to Nashville. Let's see, seventy-two. I'd already been writing songs for for eight years, and had all of these different experiences, and so I I did know something, and all the songs that I was taking to Ray were written by me, and as time went by. And I started to meet people because when we first got there, I, well, I didn't know one single person. I would meet someone and we'd hit it off. We'd go to lunch or something and say, hey, we ought to write a song together. So in, intermittently in while I was writing, I wrote, a, I did co-write a few songs. And um, one of them was sort of a, a mini hit for Reba McIntyre called, uh, I don't think love ought to be that way. That got until around number 13 or something on the, in the country music charts mm. and i loved that writer and we had such a good time doing it but i i i was still obsessed with you know just doing this myself because 
you know, you could do it at two o'clock in the morning. You could do it anytime you want because you didn't, you know, have to have a co-writer. Um, but co-writing is fun. It's just uh, you have a buddy. You've got somebody really smart to to put in their two bits when you get stuck and, and everything. Uh, for some reason, though, I just and, and and as I, you know, 20, 30 years into it, I, I did start saying, I am sick of myself. I am putting myself <laughs> at sleep with every note, every word. Who can I call? So I, around 1990, so I'd been writing songs in like 20-something years. I said, I'm going to call the smartest people I know, or some of them, and see if they'll write with me. And, and I did. And um, one of the songs was a song called The Greatest Man I Never Knew, which is, became a big hit for Reba McIntyre. It was written with Richard Lee, who had written Don't Make My Brown Eyes Blue and a bunch of other great songs. Mm. But uh, that was one of the first times when I thought, you know, I never would have written that song by myself. That was a real melding of two minds and two sets of feelings to create something that was completely original to these two people, in no way dominated by any one of us, mm-hmm. and, and something that, you know, just had a real magic to it. But what was crazy about that song is, I don't know if you know that song, but we played it for some really big stars. And they said, we think that's going to be a gigantic hit. But that was not my relationship with my dad. It's a song about a dad. Yeah, yeah. And, and people would think it is. And I was, you know, my dad and I were bosom buddies, so I don't want to do that. But, um, you know, when we played it for Reba, she said, that just rings totally, you know, I, I get it. That's totally, and, and she obviously did a fabulous job on it but that that was that was a real eye-opener and Richard and I wrote a bunch of other songs none of which ever got recorded but at least five or six of them I totally love I think are just incredible and I Mm. again would never have written them by myself which makes it an extra charge instead of that feeling that you know you sometimes get you say god damn I didn't need anybody to finish that song and then you feel like an idiot that's not too much because the times are so enjoyable when you're working with somebody else but you know it's just so hard to complete a song by yourself and you know god i could go that extra inch myself you know anyway co-writing taught me a lot but one of the things that taught me was how enjoyable it is to be in a room with somebody really smart instead of just me you know (laughs) putting myself to sleep as i say yeah it's it's very much a different beast i imagine you know and i i I suppose i know that but (laughs) so after that point you mentioned it's difficult to write with your more difficult to write with yourself knowing knowing what that experience was like and the uh, you know the other thing that actually stood out for me in that story was you mentioned pitching these songs to artists and and getting rejected for reasons that had nothing to do with how good the song is. Is, is that a lesson you see is, is difficult for people to learn? Um, I couldn't really tell you because it wasn't difficult for me because I, I felt it's my job to bring you a song you like. It's not your job to like the song. Mm. So you want the best song that you can find. And 
I know that, and I think you're an honest person. And for whatever reason, you didn't think that song fit the particular uh, recording artist that you're going to produce. And so you can't use it. And mm. so that just means that I haven't found the right match yet. That's all. It doesn't mean that that song is, I mean, there were times, literally, Ethan, when you, the song would start, they haven't heard one word, and they say, wrong tempo, turn mm. it off. Wow. So yeah. that's the kind of thing you wouldn't know. If, if I had had a representative pitching my songs for me, he would just come back and say, he didn't go for it. Uh, because he was also pitching them eight other songs. And all he knows is he liked one of those songs. And the, the, the smear of other songs just blend into no. So what you learn by pitching your own songs is stuff like that that, that, that is just based on the tempo. Or they'll say something like, um, oh, you know, that's a great song about children, but you may not know it because it's kind of private, but I don't think she's going to be talking about children for a while. You, you pick up this info that you wouldn't get if you were being represented by someone else. And that really helped me tune up my next pitches to that person because they would often say, you know, she recently went to Italy and spent, you know, three weeks on the beach. And it's just she's just a different person because she's seeing a bigger picture and she's thinking of her life. And you go, oh, God, OK, well, that helps me when I think of my next. You know, it, all these things of actually being in the marketplace uh, made made such a difference to, mm. to me. And, and as I say, I would come back and I would say, God, I can't believe you didn't like that song. But I never came back and said oh, I want to kill myself. He's so depressed. I just never felt that way. Right. It's a, it's a more empowered way to, to feel. And so you spend a lot of time doing other things besides writing songs in order to make your songs work for you. Um, like, what was your process like in terms of the balance between creating and doing business? Like, what, how did that work? Well, you know, I had already had a job, a good job on Madison Avenue with pay and decent play that enabled us to take trips and do stuff. But I really did feel that for me, just for me, because that's all we can do is speak for ourselves. I just felt I was totally wasting my life. I, mm. I, I wanted to, uh, you know, not, I, I wanted to start with a blank slate every day. I didn't want to start with, um, you know, this laxative is having problems because X and we need a, an ad that says we've corrected it. I don't want to do that. And so the fact that, that I had had all these experiences like that, or, you know, working in a fish and chips restaurant, you know, every, every day you're dealing with things like giving people back money from the cigarette machine because it didn't work and you owe them money and, even though there's a sign on the cigarette machine that says it doesn't work, don't put your money in it. You're giving just things like that. You just say, no, I, I can't do this for my whole life. I, when I was writing songs, I thought, Lang, oh, would you rather be back in the fish and chips place? Or would you rather be on Madison Avenue working on that detergent that didn't really need to be on the market? You know, would you rather be, you know, clearing brush and making it a fire to burn it on a 95 degree day? You know, all, all these other things that I tried. So I didn't have that thing of, uh, this is horrible. I gotta, I gotta get another job. I'd already had other jobs and they mm. were 
10 times harder. So this thing that seemed to mean something to me, I thought, God, you know, because most of my songs even are real simple. They're just fun. All the songs that I loved growing up were, you know, all shook up and things that, and they're not life-changing, world-changing things, but they bring, you know, they made me happy and when they be successful or something. And I think, well, they're making other people happy. I mean, that, that's fun. And, you know, and I love boy-girl songs. Most of the songs that I loved growing up were about, you know, boys and girls and the great excitement and tension between you know, sexual tension and so on. Mm. So all the other jobs helped me realize that, that however difficult this is, it's, it's preferable to everything else. And it also, those other jobs gave me huge empathy for people. I mean, I, I had worked so many jobs, you know, whether it was loading trucks, I was a teamster in the Teamsters Union for several years and in the middle of the night with, you know, people who, you know, were really good, solid people, but from a totally different, I, I just felt I had, had been in the army. I could felt like I could get along with anybody. And that really helps mm -hmm. because it, whatever Linda and I did, my wife, Linda and I did as a family, wherever we went, we were at home. I mean, we lived in a very, very, very modest apartment when we first moved to Nashville. Most lovely people on either side of us doing completely different kinds of work. We were at home with those people, mm. you know, and we'd both been to really good colleges and uh, felt that really pretty high level when I was in my ad job dealing with CEOs of this and that company and everything. So all of that makes a difference because it said, yeah, Lang, that's fine, except you want to be a songwriter. And that man who maybe only graduated from the 10th grade is in charge of you. He's in charge of this truck dock tonight. And he wants you to have dock number 34 empty by 2.30. And, and he's your boss. And all of these things awaken you to uh, other people, you know, that, that you... You know, you, you're, you're in this, you're making this yourself. You chose it. You, you suck it up. Get, get real. And so it, it wasn't hard for me because I'd already done all these jobs as a young kid and, you know, knocking on doors when I was, you know, eight and nine selling greeting cards and anybody who came to the door, an old person, you know, every color person, every, I, I just, I don't know. I, so all these other jobs is which, where you started is helped me so much always in my whole life because I, I never felt uh, out of sync with anybody I met. I'm sure I would if I met a serial murderer. If I met Ted Bundy, I'd be way out of my But most people aren't that. They're just people trying to have a decent life like I am, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So you must have written a lot of songs in the time of doing this, I'm imagining. <laughs> and like, how do you, how did you handle like filtering down to know which songs to demo, which songs to pitch? Like, Well, again, being out in the street was a big difference on, on, on how to pitch songs or what to pitch to who. And what, what I really found is that if I write songs that I love, then I'll probably end up pitching them to singers that I love. So that's where I would start. I would mm. say, who, 
whose records do I love? And I'd say, because it wasn't a question of aiming my writing toward that person. It was just that, well, I love their records. They might love my songs. And in a bunch of cases, it worked out that way. And then I didn't, I often didn't meet the people. I never met Elvis. I never met lots of the people that recorded my songs, but I did know something about their personalities and, it, it did often play that I had a couple of records recorded by the, the Pointer Sisters. Well, I, I just adored the Pointer Sisters. They were these happy, you know, fun-loving, smart, pretty, cute girls. And, and I would lie on the floor and put the detachable speakers up to my ears and listen to their records saying, God almighty, the energy and excitement and affection and, you know, sexuality coming out of these Speakers is killing me if I can mm. ever have a record by then. So I thought, well, you know, we sort of are the same kind of people. You know, maybe they would. And so I, yeah. your songs weren't your songs weren't too happy for them. <laughs> no, or too frivolous. You know, I mean, with the song of mine that they record, they recorded one was called "Should I Do It," and it became a fairly fairly good record. Not not a gigantic record, but pretty good. It was in the top 10 in a bunch of national mm-hmm. charts. Um, was fun. It's just by, you know, just the whole thing of, you know, this this guy or girl has dumped all over me once and if he calls me again, should I do it? Should I answer the phone? Should I, you know, it's just what we all go through. But they they loved it. They made a wonderful record of it and it, we I did eventually meet them and we did have a similar sensibility. It was just, you know, you know, I, I read once that Santayana or some great writer said, if you want to know what a person's like, read read what they write. And mm. um, I don't honestly know, you know, if, you know, John Steinbeck and some of the people that I love are exactly, but I bet they are probably pretty much exactly. I mean, if they've written, you know, 10 books and they all have a sensibility that communicates with me, I probably love it. I mean, even him, I honestly, when I was, I don't know, 19 or 20, I wrote a letter to John Steinbeck, and, and I said, would you please meet me at the San Remo bar at 2 o'clock on Tuesday, August 19th, you know? <laughs> I, this is no kidding. I get a postcard back from his secretary, and it says, Mr. Steinbeck will be unable to meet you at 2 o'clock on August, you know? I mean, <laughs> you know, just all the the people you you know everybody thinks they know you know whoever it is on the street and meet Beyonce and they think because they listen to her records they know her but I do think with uh, people who are whether it's Chris Christopherson writing his songs you know that he's a lover he's a romantic you, you know that guy by his songs mm-hmm. you know whether it's Steinbeck or John Updike you know I mean John Updike is cynical. Yeah, you know that. So when you meet him, you know it's he's not the guy that be you know, be telling your your funniest uh, nursery school joke to. So it's I don't know. <laughs> I love well. That's a great tip, really, because um, that idea of just matchmaking based on your taste, right? Yeah. Like, rather than trying to change your taste or you know alter what you do too to just blindly try to, you know, make a match and just do matchmaking. It sounds like there's enough artists out there that chances are you've probably got a natural market for what you're doing. Yeah. And if you can get to those people, I mean, um, even, even as 
music publishers, you know, which is it, it, music business, like all, are always changing. But, um, you know, when younger writers would come and they'd say, you know, I'm looking for a publisher. You know, how did you find a publisher? And I said, I found a publisher by turning over the credits on all the records that I loved. And I thought the odds are going up. If this guy has published these six songs that I love, that maybe he'll like mine. And, you know, and kind of basic. But um, it, I do think it plays plays out. It's It's really like people saying, I think this girl would like this guy, you know, because I know both of them. And, they, you know, it's, but it, it's, uh, it's kind of simple. So many things are really simple. And one of the simple things that I think that was interesting when I was, you know, really starting out, I said, listen, if I get a couple of great records in the next five years, I'm fine. I don't, need a million i just need a few good ones so let me spend some time on figuring out what to do with this song and then figuring out if it's if it turns out to be really difficult to get them this song how do i tune it up so that i can get it to them who do i know or do i know that he's recording you know tonight you know and yes it's raining and everything but they're going to come out of that studio about 10 30 and i'm going to be standing there with my cd or my tape or whatever and hand them the song you know you just what's the most direct way and it's generally relatively simple and not hopeless uh just there's so much logic compared including this thing of if they like this song they'll that's really what an algorithm is doing lang if you if you liked uh thinking fast and slow you're probably going to like um you know this norman vincent peel book or something that's what amazon does and really uh, an algorithmic version of simplicity in our own personal life is often the very helpful you know, because if you say, wait a minute, this guy's really, really successful, but I hate all his friggin' songs. Yeah. I'm yeah. not, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking him my song. He's famous and it'd be great if he did one of my songs, but the odds of him liking it are really slim because I hate his. Right. Why would he like mine? That's so, a good reason not to chase after that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I think more people need to hear that, you know. I, I can remember people early in their journey. It's just like, somebody like me, please. <laughs> yeah, really. And who is it? It's most likely someone who kind of thinks, you know, as I, I mean, it's so obvious, but easier said than done because it is a lot of work, no matter what. I mean, it's just immense amount of work, crushing disappointment, all kinds of stuff. But that's why it helps to me to be a young person and really try things early. That's, that's probably mm. the biggest message that I got from my mom's permission to fly. Just try things. If it doesn't work, try something else. Mm. You, know, you know, this is a stupid sounding, but you'll know what I mean. Ask the same question 50 different ways. You're standing at the door and you, somebody says they don't want to buy your, like in my case, these little greeting cards for Christmas or Easter or whatever. They said. But, you know, they'll say, I've got, all my, I've got all my Easter cards or I've got all my Christmas cards. And I say, but listen, for next Christmas, you could be whatever. You just, there's, a, there's always like a 17th way to, and often that 10th that try or that 10th door that you knock on when you've just about cashed it in for the day. Like I, when I would be selling 
we sold, as I said, bedroom slippers door to door. We would stop at 20. And usually that would happen about one in the afternoon. We, we would go to these neighborhoods and we got to be able to tell what the neighborhood looked like that would be more likely to, to buy these, these bedroom slippers. But some days it would take till 4.30 and we just keep doing it until we sold 20. And when we sold 20, it would stop. And that would usually make us $20. And we would, at that time, 1961 or two, as they say, we could go skydiving, we could buy a car, we could do anything. We were floating in bucks because we lived at home, we didn't have any expenses. And, but it all started with that, the idea of, I, you know, I don't really feel like knocking on another 25 doors. Yeah. Wait, that has nothing to do with it. You have to, you have to sell 20 pair of these things before you stop. Right. And, but you know, it's something you and I all know, but you know, we're, I'm God, I'm almost 80. Of course I know it, but. So you've, you've sold a lot of bedroom slippers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the form of songs too. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like that, that it's like a perfect metaphor. Just, <laughs> next time somebody asks you about the music business, you can just talk about selling yeah. bedroom slippers. It's kind of like selling slippers. Yeah. So from your lessons from your mother and from your own experiences, um, you know, you, you, you're a parent, like, how did you approach, approach permission and permissiveness with your children? Very much the same. We, we had, of our three boys, we had one who very early, when he was also 16, when he first got his license, we live in Nashville, and he wanted to go to wherever Apple Valley is, I think it's in Wisconsin, to a Bob Dylan concert or something. Go for it. I mean, he had the money. He made the money. I didn't give him the money. And, and when he got there, he, he grilled, grilled cheese sandwiches or something and made more money, you know, figured out, but I mean, go for it. And, and so when he, I think, I think he was 19 or thereabouts, and he called up one night and he said, I've been in every state in the United States you know, the 48 lower state, he was just curious. Mm. And it's because, you know, I mean, if someone, sh when someone is running as fast as they can in the direction, you know, unless it's bank robbery, you just kind of blow on their back and help them and rather than redirect. I mean, the idea of saying, yeah, you know, it's not really realistic. You can't earn a living writing songs. You can't earn a living, you know, writing this or doing this or being you can't be an actress and you know, no you let them do it maybe they'll you know yeah. and and the, the corollary being um you know in the meantime you know our rule in our house was kind of unspoken but if you're in school we pay if if you're not in school you pay and <laughs> that you know that played out i mean that getting out of school and you know earning you know whatever it wasn't a punishment it was just reality because it had always been an understanding i mean we certainly gave them their first month's rent and their half a month deposit and you know i think a thousand dollars and some you know to put down on a used car or something like that but you know nothing about you know we're going to support you for six months while you get your shit together yeah and and you know because you get your shit together a lot faster and until you're hanging over a cliff and really your, your life situation 
let alone your life, but your life situation is threatened, you, you don't, the, the adrenaline doesn't really kick in, but it kicks in when you say, you know, I, I'm going to kick, get kicked out of my apartment if I don't make the money, you know? <laughs> it, but it was never a mean thing, you know, I mean, it never was with my parents. It was just like, well, you know, you're, you've been out of college now for two weeks and, you know, by the end of next week or next week, you, you have to be gone, you know? And, but I was gone anyway. I couldn't wait to get gone. But anyway, so that's how we did it. We, but it was basically telling them they could, we would just say, listen, you're smart as hell. You can do anything you want. Just go for it. Try it. And basically they knew that we weren't going to be, you know, picking up the tab if, if it didn't work out because mm. throughout their whole life, they, they picked up the tab and except for, you know, we paid for their college and stuff. But so it never, it never was a confrontational type thing. It was just reality setting in and they knew it. And then they were boys. That's different. Honestly, yeah. and I don't know if we had a girl, my, I, I just don't know. I won't even comment. You know? <laughs> so did, did any of your children like do something different? Did some do the same thing you did? not really one one boy is in music he is a record producer and he was a drummer and he always was tinkering with electronics and so he became he's become a record producer he's has a studio in portland and he's produced a lot of really good people including my morning jacket and Mm -hmm. the decemberists and who else? So one of my favorites is a fairly recent one, a year or two, a couple of years ago, he did a group called First Aid Kit from, from Sweden, these two girls. Mm. I promise you they look like they just stepped out of Wellesley or Stanford or something. I mean, they're mm. smart as a whip. They're beautiful. Speak English so perfectly you would never clue. And that is a completely different kind of he, – he does a completely different kind of music for me. I, did, I literally did not know one person who could help. He totally launched himself, and he has a hell of a lot more contacts in the music business at this point than I do. But he made them himself because he did have an idea of what he wanted to do, who he wanted to be, how he wanted to go about it. And he, he didn't want to go to college. He told us that in the beginning. Yeah. He's 15 or so. He said, Dad, just want you to know. Not going to college, and he left home. I would say three or four days after high school, and and never looked back. I mean, it's mm. just kind of unbelievable because he's forty eight now. His name is Tucker, yeah. Tucker Martin. Um, our our youngest boy wanted to work in Silicon Valley, and he went to the University of Oregon. He worked for Adobe for eleven years, and now he has a software company of his own. And our oldest boy. Um, was is very independent minded and he has just found a way to he's 51 he's found a way to be independent lived on his own for the last i don't know 30 whatever years and right now he's um basically sells a form of software to to people um but he has a van and he he lives in this sprinter van that he's got a refrigerator and a bed. Uh, he's, he's kind of the digital nomad. Color. Well, he is, yeah. yeah. So they're all, none of them have had jobs for years. I mean, Matt, the youngest one, had a job, I think, 12 years ago or so when he left Adobe, but he hasn't worked for anybody but himself. And none of them have worked for anybody but themselves, basically. For, I mean, they 
But again, Ethan, they, they're willing to pay the price because when you do that, you're scared shitless a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And you, you do not have any illusion that you can't, things can't go bad in a hurry. And they all know that. And they are tough. They're kind and fair and street shooters and all that, but they're tough as nails because they, you know, had to, had to keep themselves going. And, mm. you know, but, you know, it's, as I say, you, you and I are old, I'm twice as old as you, at least, mm. <laughs> but, um, almost not, not at yeah, least. Yeah. but you, you know, I mean, you, you get, yeah, you live, you live a lot in that span of time. And you've seen things and you know, things can happen that is well things are going on now. in like an eighth of a second that you turn can, you know, we yeah. know. That. Yeah. And so it sounds like that, that breath on the back that you got from your mother you kind of paid it forward and yeah yeah very that's that's it's so true i mean there's just something about someone who truly believes in you and 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 i mean really i made a lot of mistakes she never said you know i can't believe you did that or she never knew half the time because you know when you're an adult you don't go telling your parents and putting a weight on their shoulders Mm -hmm. Uh, but all along the way she just she would say starting when I was like seven years old, she said, Lang, you look so cute in those blue jeans. You're the cutest boy who ever lived or something. And you just hear that enough. And, and you hear, you know, you get some, whether it's a, you know, a reckless driving track at ticket or something, which sounds so horrible. And it is, yeah. she would never say, you know, you're crazy. You know, I, I knew that you, she would say, go to court do what they have to do. You can't drive for, you know, six months, figure it out. You know, you know, nothing about I'm an awful person. She would always say just the opposite. Lang, that's nothing you can't figure out. You know, that was, she would say, Lang, that's, that's nothing you can't figure out. I can hear her saying that. And it was, yeah, she would say, she would always say, well, I, I can't see why not. Or if you were trying to make a decision, you know, you're, you're, 12 or something see well is there something else you'd rather do you say, well not really well then try that you know i mean all very logical but it all the the baseline to all of it was but if it doesn't work out it's your problem <laughs> and that that really is the difference i think with mm-hmm. the kid you say i go for it try it you know um if it doesn't work out you'll 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 figure it out you know not I'll figure it out. Not I'll go talk to the teacher. Just you'll figure it out. And once that message gets in your brain, it, it builds this confidence, and you just think, well, I can figure this out. You know, it's not the worst. You know, blah blah blah. Yeah. And <laughs> did you ever write a song called "That's Nothing" or "That's Nothing You Can't Figure Out"? <laughs> no, but that's not a that's not a bad idea. Um. Um. I sort of things around that. I wrote this song that no one has ever recorded that I think is so fantastic, which is it's called "Let's Not Get Into That." And it's you know, yeah, yeah, we, we didn't we didn't really make it the first time, I mean, but let's you know, let's not get into that. You know, let's not get into the eleven songs that I played you in the last year. You hated them all. Listen to this song, you know, right. it, you know. But that's a good thought, you know. It's like. You know, you can figure it out. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's good. nothing. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah, that's figured. Yeah. 
There you Give go. Give me an idea. And I guess that's how you know, songwriting and co-writing works, right? You just talk it story is. and then you latch on to the interesting yeah, part. And everybody pitches in their two bits. But like with this song, The Greatest Man I Never Knew, I happened to I Richard Lee and I, the co-writer, didn't know each other really well. But I did know that he had never known his dad. But his dad had been extremely successful. I, th I think his dad may have been 60 or so when Richard was born, yeah. something like that. He was pretty, pretty well along in his life. And obviously the mother was younger. But he had, I think he had been like Eisenhower's biographer or whatever. He had had a fairly exalted career. So when we went in to work on the pretty, I think it was the first co-writing session that we ever had, I, I said, well, you got any great ideas? And he said, well, I got this idea I've been thinking about. It's called The Greatest Man I Never Knew. Well, I, I knew that he didn't know, had never known his dad. And I said, well, The Greatest Man I Never Knew lived right down the hall from me. And he said, wow, that's it. We're rolling, you know. And so mm -hmm. it's just what you say is these sparks that happen between people that it's so neat when you've got another person to help strike the match, you know. Yeah. It's like you just kind of document your conversation, write down a few lines. Yeah, and you know, I recently, uh, not too recently, but five years ago or so, I came across the original uh, notepad, which was a yellow notepad, which I didn't usually use, that had the beginnings of that song. And man, we were headed in the wrongest of wrong direction. <laughs> and I thought, holy shit, we've, what a miracle. We didn't go down those roads. But I donated that lyric sheet to the Country Music Hall of Fame. And because, you know, I didn't really care about it. But it is an example of how, uh, even when you've been doing it as long as we had at that time, it, you, you don't always know what you're doing. You know, you, you make a lot of mistakes along the way. That song, song took five solid days to write, which is really long because mm -hmm. so often the really big songs happen quickly because they're so natural and, and colloquial and they just kind of vomit out of you, yeah. uh, you know, without too much fanfare. But that one, we really had to bust our tail. It's on. a high concept song. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. You know, it was just so emotional. And so yeah. we had to, it had to, each, each little vignette had to just have the ring really true to, you know, what we each knew from our life. And yeah. You've got to match that emotional tone the entire time. Yeah. And, and we both a high bar. Yeah. And when you know Richard is incredibly bright, like a whiz kid genius type person, so what we both had to really think it was fabulous. And so when it had run through our sort of mutual computers, and we both said, "Yeah, that's fabulous," you know, that's a, a little bit of a you know a stamp that says, "Yeah, okay, it's been vetted by a couple of you know experienced old people," and mm. you know the odds go up that it's it actually is halfway decent. <laughs> so you mentioned, you mentioned the country music hall of fame and all that, and you were inducted in, into the Nashville songwriters hall of fame. Like, what was that like? How do you, what does that feel like? Is that like just this mark in time, a nice little pat on the back, you know, weird or, or just totally you know, awesome to hang out with friends. 
Um, it, oh God, I mean, it, it really, I, it's odd. I, I honestly do. I think about that every day. I really do. As crazy as it sounds, I, you know, because it just helps. I, I was, you know, a very happy camper up until that moment, but suddenly there was this little period at the end of a sentence that that just helped. It mm. really did. It, because I think probably you and I are similar in that we're we're not in our world to make money. We're in it. There's something else. There's got to be more. Yeah. And the idea that you know that. You know, some of the great people who have written songs like in the world, you know, had voted that, you know, that you just think that's just such a great feeling. Mm. Uh, you know, I, anyway, you know, I, I, I think we do I, search for we do search for belonging. Right. That's part of part of the journey. Well, just just that I don't know, a, a compliment, you know, I just thought, gosh, you know. It, it isn't something that there's nobody who starts writing songs. I think that initially you're just thinking, you know, how thrilling it would be to see your name on the same page as some great singer. That's what yeah, really yeah. Or that. get to hang out backstage with a hero. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it was so funny. I never wanted to meet the people. It was so wow. weird. I don't yeah. want them to know. You know, am I tall? Am I short? Am I? <laughs> What color am I? I just don't want anything. Just here's the song. Do you like the mm. song? But you know, the the times that I did meet the people, I I I loved, you know, I loved everybody that I ever met because they're all, they've all had their ass kicked around the block, and you you have an immediate uh, rapport and, and simpatico with them. Yeah. But um, anyway, so yeah, the Hall of Fame. I I don't know. I you know I it's funny you really my two thoughts were how how did this ever happen and the answer really was by my wife who just was incredibly gutsy and you know when i i had bailed in a business and it was the, we had to face whether i was going to go you know back into advertising which just wasn't my thing or going to go to nashville we had i had the record that ray stevens made with me singing called rub it in had gotten into the sort of the bottom of the billboard charts. And so it had sort of given me the feeling that I, I could write a song that could, could make it. And, and she said, Oh, there's no choice. We just, we have to go to Nashville. Well, we had two little kids and we had absolutely no money. Mm. And that incredibly gutsy. So Linda and Ray Stevens take them out of the picture, either one. And I am a below zero human being as far as songwriting goes. So, so, you know, wow. yeah. you know, just a wonderful feeling to 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 know that it it bore out and was good for Linda and that it was good for Ray. Ray Stevens and I are still very. I'm crazy about him to this day. Tell him I love him every 15 seconds, mm. and we go to lunch and and talk about whatever. And it's one of the nice things about the fact that I at one point I had to I had to leave Ray's company after 10 years because I needed to get these you know, records outside of Nashville, and I wasn't getting it anywhere. Mm. So I had to sign with a, a big publisher, and I was lucky that the, the guy who was definitely the most famous pop music publisher of his era named Erwin Schuster mm. um, 
and I made a, an agreement and he got me, you know, these records that were just impossible, like the Pointer Sisters and stuff. And um, it's been a great feeling for me to know that even though I had to leave Ray's company, he understood and that I was 40 years ago and we're better friends now than we were then. That, that means a great deal to me. Mm. It, it, it's so important to know that you'd be nothing without these people that help you because every single person that ever got anywhere had immense help from people. Yeah. And they, it's just absurd when I occasionally, you know, went into a person or even hear an interview or something and it's acting like they did it themselves. It's just, it's such a disservice to the three quillion people it took to, to get somebody anywhere. It is. It's also a disservice to people who maybe have these dreams secretly of doing something similar and feel like it's not accessible oh you're so right to 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 not know that you do need help you may have the greatest song in the world ethan so many amazing songs are written every day in nashville and i'm sure in other cities but i know in nashville every day mm-hmm. it's just plain not enough to have a great song it's too bad the whole myth that cream will rise to the top and he builds the best mousetrap and all, it's garbage you've got to push that cream to the top you've got to take that mousetrap William friggin people before you find the right it's yeah. just and that's the kind of unspoken part of it the the incredible uh, amount of swings you need to take at the plate to, to get one single you know yeah so yeah, it helps to demystify that as early as possible, you know. Yeah, so yeah. People I mean, don't every, walk every, away from the journey that might not otherwise. Well, or the idea that, wait, uh, this guy's produced, you know, ten smash movies or ten smash singles or albums or something, so he knows, and he didn't like my song, so I'm screwed. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's just not true. He didn't need your song at this moment, but. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't need it, or it wasn't to his taste, you know. Or... It's not right, exactly. It's not his personality. So you keep, you know. <laughs> yeah, you it's it's it? not a, it's not an instant rewards kind of journey to do oh, no, to do no. anything yourself. And that's I, exactly right. I mean, yeah. it really helps to know that to be a fantastic insurance agent, restaurateur, software engineer, anything is so hard. So anytime, you know, anybody thinks that the music business or any other business is harder than enough, it's not. To be a total ace at any of them is incredibly hard, especially if you're meant to do the music business or to to be a book writer or whatever else, and you're trying to be an insurance agent, you're going to really eat shit compared to the guy who's cut out to be an insurance agent. Yeah, and I'm so glad you say that because I, like, now that I'm in middle age, like that is firmly my belief. Like I wouldn't have believed that perspective in college that all paths are equally hard. I, <laughs> so you might as well do the one that you're going to have the most fun with. Yeah. And that you care the most about where, where yeah. when it works, you go, Holy shit. I can't believe that I did that. You know, yeah. that's, you know, that, that's totally different from saying I got a raise and I hate this job. I just got more money to do it. <laughs> you know, that's, Oh my God, that's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, these are first world problems for sure. But Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, but and and not a day passes that I don't know that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you like me. You you go to bed at night and you say, you know, three or four miles from here, there, you know, two or three kids in one bed and parents yeah. at home because they're working and you know all these stuff we know. Yeah. The luck factor is just so gigantic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for people who want to know more about you, how can they do so? Well, in Ed's book, Permission to Fly, I, you know, it's just, it's just about you know the struggles of trying to have a life you care about, and I, I you know, it's I read the reviews on Amazon, and I think God, it's just so gratifying that someone reads this book, and they'll say that it it helped them, or you know, you know just it, it's just but it really what it is is about the things that these people basically either said to me or showed me mm. and i never in the book say this is a lesson or something but you know when you've done something really awful in school or something or gotten a lot of trouble in school um there's this brief story in, in my book about the dean of students who this other two guys and I had a, were at a boarding school and we left the campus, which was the most serious crime that you could commit. And we <laughs> went to the girls' school oh, just boy. one day. Yeah. And uh, the other two guys got caught. And three or four days later, uh, the dean of students called me in and he said, were you with these guys on it? And I said, yeah. And his next sentence was, because we all knew what the, the worst punishment you could get was, so he didn't have to tell me that. But his next sentence after I said that, I yes, I was with him, was, do you want a root beer or anything? I had just never forgotten that. Like with our kids, you know, you, you don't need to tell somebody when they've really screwed up. Yeah. What you need to do is let them know they're still a good person and there yeah. is a tomorrow, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's an excellent point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, God. I mean, feeling safe and secure is like a foundation oh, you're of so thriving. Right. Yeah. You're so right. You're so right. For a child to be in their bed and know that they're cared about and that when they get up in the morning, somebody loves them, someone's going to hug them, someone tuck them in at night. Oh, my God, that's the greatest thing going. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you have a website as well. I do, but yeah, I do. I haven't been updating it lately because all the talks I was giving for my book have been, you know, they canceled because you can't have gatherings and stuff. So I'm not really, mm. but it, it, yeah, I do have a website and anybody who, you know, goes there, they'll tell a little bit about it. And they could read the story. There was the New York Times story, which is a little dose of the way the book is. Uh, but I really, I wish they would read Permission to Fly because you know, I, I, I loved working on it, and all of these people are such worthwhile people, and the, the things that they showed me and taught me and said to me are kind of universal. They're not particular to me. They're just things that it really helps, helps to know as a young person or even as an older person. When I really think of, you know, I mean, every interesting person that I know, every successful person I know has made so many mistakes and they will continue to make mistakes because all the interesting people I know will keep trying things and not everything works. Yeah. And it really helps to know that. Even, but God, I mean, I don't know if you read uh, Shoe Dog, the book by Phil Knight about founding Nike. 
Oh my God. That start right early on the, in the book, Ethan, he's in his parents' bedroom, mm. surrounded by his high school penance and running trophies and stuff. He's 26 years old. And he says to himself, what I promise you, every honest guy has said to himself, which is, God, for somebody 26 years old, I should be a lot farther all along in life than yeah. I am. Every guy has said that a million times because we just have the feeling we should be doing better. And I think, God damn, Phil Knight just gave $100 million of his pocket change to build a stadium at the University of Oregon or whatever he did. He felt that way? Well, Ethan, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I get, I get you. It's like that comparisonitis feeling. Yeah, you can't help. I it's mean, universal. It, is, it is a drive factor. I mean, you, you, yeah. you can't help it. And it's, I mean, you know, you are in, in a way you're, you're in a race and, you know, you, you know, whether you're in a literal race or in a race, you, you're in a race to try to make enough money to pay the rent. I mean, it's a race. You know? Yeah. Are you ever are you ever too old to start like leaning into your dreams? <laughs> no, no, because I mean my book was my later dream in my life. We're, our dreams right now are, are they're definitely different. I mean, I have so much fun with my wife and like during this this COVID thing, um we we go on a drive every single solitary day for two mm -hmm. or three hours every day mm -hmm. we listen to books that's what we do we listen to books that relate to men and women they're and they're fiction i'm i normally read nonfiction, but these books are love stories and family stories and most of them oddly enough they're long i've been written by australian women it's been it's been really interesting mm -hmm. and they're read by this incredible australian actress um well, I mean, one of the most memorable of this, maybe eight books or so, I mean, they're 17 or 20 hours long, mm. um, is called The Husband's Secret. And what Linda and I do is when a really fascinating sentence is completed, sometimes we'll stop the book and just say, God, what'd you think of that? Because the male viewpoint, female viewpoint is so different. Mm. How, what's that do to you? What do you think about that? And in a nutshell, this husband's secret, the premise of this book is that this, this couple has been married, you know, 25 or 30 years. Their kids are getting gradually out of school. They have a nice house. He's got a good job. She's got a good job. They're in a nice position in their community and everything. And the guy is on a business trip, and she's cleaning the attic. So the wife in cleaning the attic comes across this envelope, and it says, to be opened on the event of my death, and it's in her husband's handwriting. And she says, oh, my God. And so with brief internal debate on her part, she says, I'm up. she opens the letter. And in the letter, he confesses to the most famous murder in their town. Mm. And you stop the book and you say, what do you do? I mean, you've been married 25 or 30 years. You've got three kids. This guy was never a suspect. No one ever even knew this. He, he killed this girl that they even knew each other. Um, your, your kids would be ruined. You'd lose their house, all your money. Your husband's in prison. You're screwed up and everyone thinks you're a loser because your husband's a criminal. I mean, what do you do? I mean, it's, it's anyway, there's these premises have been 
this high drama stuff that really like if you ask some guy you say well shit i'm i'm not confessing to that i'm not <laughs> you ask a woman you know it's just different yeah you know so that's it's incredibly been, romantic thing to do by the way it, it really Really, really, really is because family stories and love stories are it to me. That's where all the the pathos and, and drama and, and emotion is, and, and those are my favorite things in the world. That and ice cream, you know. But that's all kind of the same thing. Uh, so anyway, that's that's our hopes and dreams at the moment. Just to be able to keep doing that for a while, and you know. I, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I know I'll never write another book, and I doubt I'll ever write another song. But I might get an idea of an old song to pitch to somebody, and you never know. I mean, that's, yeah. you know. Well, you keep, you mentioned, you know, like some of these songs that uh, that you believe are really good that never got cut. Like, maybe, yeah. there, maybe there's a record there. Yeah, definitely. And and I occasionally do send one if I get it, you know, middle of the night, wake up, I send one to uh Katie Lang, I love her. She's a great singer. Mm. I sent her a, a song recently, and, and she said it was beauty and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, the odds are she'll never record it. But you just don't know because the song comes into them on the day they were thinking, God damn, that's just the kind of thing I need to complete my album. You just don't know. I yeah. have learned you don't know. So don't suppose that you know. Right. Just try it. Yeah. And so... Who knows, maybe. I mean, one of my, my Elvis song recently became a commercial in England. That's the kind of crazy shit that happens. It's a song called Way Down. So it was a hit, what was that, be 43 years ago. Yep. And this supermarket chain in England called Morrison's is kind of known for their low prices. So they do this way down. Our prices are way down, way down. I mean, you just don't know. So I, I just any shot that I can possibly take, I, you know, because who, you know, who knows? Yeah, that's great perspective. <laughs> well, Lang, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much. Well, you're you're an ace. I can tell we'd be great friends if you we live near each other. Yeah, I agree. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.